I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, part one of 10 lessons learned for developing a successful strip till system, is being brought to you by Topcon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAC's boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. And I'd like to invite you to attend the 5th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference coming up July 26th and 27th in Iowa City, Iowa. The 2018 event will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions on topics and trends specific to strip-till. Look for speaker announcements and conference updates at striptillconference.com. Well, starting out in strip-till requires planning, patience, and a bit of a sense of adventure. Farmers who have made the transition understand the commitment of time and effort that go into developing a productive, profitable system. But any strip tiller will attest that growing pains and failure will be part of the evolutionary process. Custom strip tilling more than 20,000 acres on 20 to 25 different soil types during the last five years, Elk Point, South Dakota farmer Joey Hansen has seen the good, bad, and the ugly of equipment setups, berm building, and fertilization strategies. In his experience, he's seen primarily two types of strip tillers those who want strip-till to succeed and make it work, and those who don't really want to succeed with strip-till, but try it so they can say the tillage system they've been using was the best. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by Topcon Agriculture, Joey begins sharing 10 takeaways from his experience strip-tilling, including strip-till timing, equipment options, and soil building opportunities. Raised on a farm in southeast South Dakota, still live on that farm, I still farm. We're mostly corn and soybean rotation. I strip till for a lot more than that. I strip till in alfalfa ground. I do a lot of cereal rye here in the last couple years and I'll kind of discuss that a little bit. Some wheat stubble, but mostly corn and soybean rotation. We used to be 100% conventional tillage forever. I mean, back to grandpa and my dad and, and for years and years, this was the biggest thing that probably frustrated me more than anything was, I just could not wrap my hands around this conventional tillage practice. Everybody did it. I mean, it, to no-till, you would be the odd man out in our area. It's very heavy conventional tillage. But it just didn't make any sense to me, you know, you just didn't, which one, which piece of equipment were you gonna go hook onto and use this year? And we started farming in 2010, actually, is when we kind of took over. And for probably the next four or five years after that, I spent a lot of time researching and, and trying to figure out what could I do differently than we've done already 
multiple years over and over. So that's kind of what got me going down the path of, of strip tilling. Um, like I said before, we're pretty flat. We're actually a pretty small area. So just a mile east of where I live, you cross the Big Sioux River and you get into Iowa. Very hilly, very terracy. You go 10 miles south of where I live and you get in Nebraska. Maybe not so much terracy, but still very, very hilly. So we're pretty narrow. We're only maybe 20, 25 miles wide by maybe 50 miles long that we're a pretty flat area. And then actually as you progress north and west through South Dakota, they start to have more rolling hills. So we have a little different type of topography than, than most of probably uh, South Dakota is. But heavy irrigation, we've had heavy irrigation in Southeast South Dakota for, for quite some time, so for you know, 30, 40 years. So talk about strip till, right? Talk about custom strip till. I was in ag retail for seven years before I started Diversified Agronomy, which is my crop consulting custom strip till business. In July of 13, I stepped away from the ag retail and had kind of made the plans to start strip tilling. 13 was a nightmare year for us, for especially for me starting out in strip till. It rained about two or three days every single week. I only got about one or two days to do strip till. The plan, the intention, what we wrote down on paper was we were going to try to target about 3,000 acres, which is a realistic number, but it wasn't that year. And it was just a complete nightmare. And I only ended up getting over about 1,400 acres. And we really had to sit down at the end of the year and say, how is this going to work, right? I mean, 1,400 acres, it just doesn't pencil. For the expense that you have to put into strip till equipment, um, it wasn't going to work. What ended up happening was 14 was probably one of the best years in terms of finding success and grabbing a leg hold. The reason I say that was some of the best stands out there were in those 1,400 acres that I stripped to. So I talk about what led to the increase from the fall of 13 going into 14. It was the stand of the spring of 14. I didn't pick up a lot more customers from 13 to 14, but all the customers that I had in 13 just about doubled their acres in 14. And from there, the rest of it was kind of history. You know, I don't, I used to advertise a lot and, and um, get out and, and talk to people. And quite frankly, I don't have to do that anymore. The best, the best advertising that I can do is just try it for somebody and they get hooked pretty fast. So as you can tell in 15, uh, we started to get into spring acres a little bit. I wasn't super excited about that because I'm so busy in the springtime, busier than I am in the fall. But there were some acres we didn't get done in the fall of 14. And so we tried it on in 15. That worked really well. The spring setup that I ran that year, I wasn't really sure as to how you could be successful in my area. We have some really heavy gumbo soils. And so I ran a double coulter system. I don't actually run that anymore. And so then 16, I actually changed the system over again. And I went to a knife system when I went down into Nebraska to do a bunch of corn on corn acres. Um, the reason that I switched from the double coulter to the mini mole knife from 15 to 16 was actually one reason. That grower that I did 1,200 acres for in 16 was putting down like 450 pounds of fertilizer in the spring ahead of corn planting. And that made me extremely nervous. With the double coulters, you had very light incorporation. You were no more than maybe three or four inches deep max. And so I was really concerned about burn. I was concerned about stand and emergence. And so we went to the, to the mini mole knife system, which is, which is what I ran in 17. Um, and as you can tell, we built up acres in 15 in the fall. They stayed pretty steady in 16. I would anticipate they'll, they'll stay steady, if not actually increase. 
going into, into 17. But I've learned in the last four, I guess this will be my fifth fall now, that flexibility is without a doubt the, the key to my success. I have spent more time working and welding and, and tweaking my system over the last four or five years to try to make it work because I'm over probably 20, 25 different soil types. I work with 30 different growers. And as you can tell, my area is pretty large too. So it's not just one setup and, and I go with it. So as I put this together, you know, I thought, geez, what are some of the lessons I learned? I get back to the custom side of things when you talk about mindsets and mental thought processes and having goals and strategies because I can't just pull into a field for this grower and he has the same expectations maybe as the next few growers. So that changes. So these are kind of my top 10, understanding the concept and the mindset. When I talk about concept, I've come to believe now going from a completely conventional tillage system to a complete strip till system that it is a concept. And it is something that, that you have to grab hold of and understand before you can just jump in. Goals, my goals were pretty simple. The options, I told you I probably spent four or five years. I was pretty set for about a year before I got into it what I wanted. I bought what I wanted and then I changed what I bought shortly after that to completely different than what I had anticipated. So that's a big one. One shot, maybe two. The maybe two part on a custom strip till business, there is no maybe two. Right? I don't believe in spring freshening strips. Uh, mainly because I can't, I don't have time to do it. And if you do a good enough job in the fall, you don't need to freshen strips in the springtime. And I'll talk about the spring of 17. This was probably the worst spring that any of my strip till customers have seen in terms of finding their strip. We got so much rain this spring, they just disappeared. And it was a nightmare. I mean, I had more phone calls from, how do I start planting? I can't even see the strips. So that's something. RTK, that wasn't a failure for me. I started out with RTK, but I learned a lot about dealing with customers. A lot of my customers don't have any kind of a guidance system. I think I have probably seven different planter types from a six row all the way up to a 32 row that I strip till for with my 12 row machine. Um, some of the different options, and of course, skeptics. I deal with it every year, every day, all the time. I've come to determine that there's three different types of people, and I'll try to, try to go over that. How much fertilizer can I cut? That was probably the biggest one in the custom world. Of course, there's gonna be an added expense for these growers to hiring me to do strip till. And so that was one thing they wanted to do. To offset some of the expense from hiring a strip tiller, they wanted to cut their fertility. And let me tell you, as an agronomist and as a farmer, that's one thing that I'm not a fan of at all. And then weeds, that was something I never really anticipated, never really thought of. I learned a lot about weed spectrum shifting, going from a full conventional tillage to a strip till. And like I said, I didn't do much strip till for no-tillers because we have very little no-till. But I know that I don't need to tell you no-tillers that you change in your weed spectrum from conventional till going to no-till. So very similar. And then I think it's probably about as perfect of a marriage as, as you can get. So I'll get into that. So concept and, and the mindset behind it. You know, conventional tillage, which piece of equipment are you gonna grab this year? I think back about 2012, I'm sure most people in here had a drought, right? We were pretty well done by the middle of September with harvest for the most part, not much to do. And you went out and you did your tillage and then you sat around in the middle of October 
when you normally would be doing harvest and most people went back out and did more recreational tillage because you had all the time in the world. And I thought to myself, this just doesn't make any sense. Why are we, you know, why are we doing this? Well, because we own the equipment. That's why we're doing it and we're bored. So 12 really, really slapped me in the face and I thought, this just, this is just the craziest thing ever. And that's kind of what really got the process going on. But it was, I mean, these conventional tillage people, they have multiple pieces of equipment and you can use any of these tools. And if you don't like what you have, don't worry about it. Just make another pass with the soil finisher or the field cultivator and it'll look a whole lot better and you'll feel better about things. And so I wanted to get away from that mindset and that mentality. We'll get back to Joey's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. Agronomy matters, and Topcon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Talking with Joey at last year's National Strip Tillage Conference, he spoke with several attendees, either brand new to strip till or interested in experimenting with the practice, and offered some simple advice. Success comes from trial and error, and I've done a lot of trial and error, getting to the point where I can hopefully stay away from some of the error, Joey said. I define insanity as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. That's kind of what conventional tillage became for me. It's very simple. If you want strip till to succeed, it will. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Joey Hansen. I still run the same machine. I've actually upgraded tractors since then. It is a 12-row Blue Jet. I said I was pretty set on what I wanted for a machine, right? Right off the bat. And so I got it all decked out. It had anhydrous, the whole nine yards. Before I ever strip-tilled one single acre, everything on the anhydrous came off. Part of the reason was my insurance company wouldn't cover that. So they made it a pretty easy decision for me. I wasn't gonna apply anhydrous which actually was a good thing. I don't deal with a lot of anhydrous. I'm not a big anhydrous fan. Actually, I hate anhydrous, but a lot of people north of me, probably 30 miles, were big anhydrous people. And so I thought this would be an avenue for them to still do anhydrous in the fall and, and try strip tilling. So I got rid of the anhydrous right off the bat. I pull a nine ton Montag steerable cart. You know, I'm not here to talk, necessarily talk about the differences between strip-till machines or brands or this or that. I can merely tell you on my experiences over the last nearly 20,000 acres on what I have. And I know that that setup works pretty good now after about four, four years of tweaking. And then you talk about no-till. Two by two, you want to use starter. There's got to be 15 or 20 different residue manager options, uh, different closing wheel options. And so it's just stark differences between conventional till. Most of those people don't need residue managers. They all run rubber closing wheels. You know, they can go in, they can buy a planter, have it set up just the basic way and have great success in conventional till. Well, any no-tillers out there know that you can't do that. And for years, we've always run starter fertilizer. I'm a huge fan of starter fertilizer. I continually try to convince my consulting customers to put starter, no matter what their tillage practice is, I think there's a big benefit from it, but you're seeing a lot more of these tools and options. Actually, 
I would say of my consulting customers, probably 50% of them, we put on a spike closing wheel in the start of spring of 2017. It's probably one of the best things we ever did. Even in strip till, even in the finely textured strips, those spike closing wheels we've seen a drastic advantage of. And that's just kind of an uncommon practice in conventional till. Most people run the rubber closing wheels. Drag chains, I've actually run drag chains on my planner for probably almost 10 years. I love them. Another form of a drag chain that I use following a double coulter system on the strip till machine that took that strip till from an okay pass to a really good pass. So these are just some of the differences that, you know, between the three. So my goals, like I said, they were very simple. Don't go broke, right? That was the whole purpose of, of what I didn't want to do the very first year, which I nearly did do the very first year. Luckily, nobody wanted my strip till machine after my first year, because I tried to sell it. I mean, we had to. We looked at the numbers and said this wasn't going to work. Thank goodness. The second year, as you could tell, we grew and grew, and we've done nothing ever since then. So really, my strategy was pretty simple. Just do anything and everything I possibly could to not grow broke. And apparently, I have not gone broke. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be standing here today. But over this system, over this last four or five years, the goals and the outcomes, what we wrote down on paper, what we were going to do and what we should be able to do and could do, um, they just didn't match. And so we had to find a way to adjust that. Luckily, the practice of strip till, like I said, is the best advertisement you can do. And those growers just fell in love with it and it just naturally grew. So we found a way to be able to match some of those goals to our actual final outcome that we were hoping to do. So I say that my success is a direct correlation to the mindset of my customers. Because I'm in strip till and because I'm in custom strip till, if my customers don't like the end result of what they get from me, then they're not going to do it anymore. From 13 to 14, going from 1,400 to 3,300 in one year and hardly growing any new customers, that showed me that this practice is a viable option for these people. Now just understanding what it was for each one. I mean, I had some of them that said, I've never seen such a perfect stand before. My stand is just absolutely perfect. How could I possibly improve my stand from conventional till? Well, strip till did it. Some of them said, I'm so busy in the fall, I just don't have time to disc. I don't have time to chop stocks, I don't have time to rip, I don't have time in the springtime. And so some of them just like the, the savings or the, or the fact that they didn't have to do anything actually. Uh, increase in yield, honestly, you, you don't typically see a large increase in yield from conventional till to strip till immediately. So that wasn't one thing that I highly promoted. We talked about efficiencies, we talked about utilization, we talked about a lot of different things, but it wasn't always necessarily an increase in yield. Now we did talk about an increase in profit quite a bit, and that's kind of where we've been going. Some of these guys I've been working for for the last four or five years, we've started to see that increase actually over on some of their conventional till acres. And just overall soil structure, I had more night crawlers in some of the fields that I dug in that have been strip till for the last few years than I've ever seen before. Conventional till, it's about impossible to find night crawlers anymore. You just destroy that soil multiple times a year. And so our soil structure is starting to change. And so frustration is expected, success is usually rewarded. Frustration is going to happen every year, and it will happen every year, but um, there's ways to overcome it, and hopefully we can help with that. So I talk about knowledge of, of options. Uh, there's so many options out there. I mean, just walk down this aisle. You're going to see so many different setups and, and um, different options to choose from. But I spent a lot of time talking to other strip tillers. I was on the phone a lot for the, probably a year or two before I ever 
purchased equipment. I met with people. I drove out to places that had strip-till equipment, you know, and I really wanted to see what it was all about. I mean, you, you didn't really hear of strip-till in, in Southeast South Dakota. I had to explain the process to the majority of my customers before I ever started trying to sell the practice to them. Right, what is strip-till? That doesn't make any sense. What are you saying? You mean to tell me that I'm just gonna plant on your strips in the spring? I'm not gonna field cultivate it? Can we field cultivate it still? No, you can't field cultivate it. You're just gonna plant onto it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable, but that thought process is as much of a challenge as physically strip-tilling is. So that's why I talk about some of the, the challenges, more so than just equipment, but on the mindset of things too. And knowing the cons is equally important. I tell you what, my strip-till machine is not perfect. There's a lot of things that I'd, I'd love to change about my strip-till machine. I've, I've learned about them, I've adapted to them, and we've been able to, to take them into kind of a minimal issue anymore compared to right off the bat we were starting, we were fighting them all the time. And I talk about differences between features and benefits, right? So one of the features of my strip-till machine that I bought right off the bat was I had an hydra set up on it. It was all plumbed, ready to go. It was the first thing that I took off. So it really wasn't a benefit to me when I didn't end up using it. But one thing that I will say about my machine, I've, I've set it up multiple different ways. The first guy that spoke, funny because he has a, a blue jet also, I noticed that, and I listened to some of his challenges and stuff, and I've been through some of that. Some of the, also some of the challenges is when you go from a 12-row machine to a 24-row machine, they're a completely different animal. So no different than these planters, you know, you see these 24 and 32 row planters that have weights out on the set, out on the end. You never saw weights on six, eight, 12 row planters, right? So it's just a different animal that you, that you battle all the time when you're changing the dynamics of the strip-till machine. So one shot, maybe two. I believe in the, the one shot, right? I've got to do it right in the fall. I can't be coming back in the springtime to try to freshen up strips. I definitely can't be coming back three days later in the fall to be restripping, right? So I spend a lot of time focusing in on my first few days of the season, making sure that thing is set up right. I've done it enough now that, and I've done it enough in enough tough situations to know that here's some adjustments that I can make um, to make the success of this you know, a little bit better. So uh, as you can tell by my acres, I do the majority of my work in the fall time. My spring acres, I try to keep those at a minimal because I'm pretty busy. But I tell you what my backup plan has been for the customers that I couldn't get done in the fall to have a plan to sit down with them to do it in the springtime. And that's, that's worked pretty well, especially the last few years that we've kind of run a little bit different of a setup in the springtime where we've gone away from the double coulters, which has its place, um, just not necessarily in, in my operation. And there's a big change from fall to spring. Um, I found myself setting my machine up more for spring conditions and then running it in the fall because it's so much more of a finesse in the springtime and it's a lot more forgiving in the fall. I mean, Mother Nature's on your side in the fall. You've got pretty much six months for her to fix whatever you screwed up and you don't in the springtime. You know, sometimes I only have like six days. So that's a big thing right there. There's some big changes between fall and spring. And then what needs to change in your fertility program? You know, I'm gonna talk a little bit about that coming up. A lot of people talking about cutting. How much can I cut? You know, you're gonna cost me X amount of dollars an acre. Can I cut at least half that out of my fertility program? And that's a big battle that I deal with continually, even today, even with existing customers wanting to, to change your fertility program to try to offset that. But not only that, there's an interaction, you heard Ray Ward speak, uh, interaction between 
different nutrients within the soil, right? So there's a big difference if you're banding phosphorus example that gets highly tied up. I think the range of pH that I strip till in is probably 5.2 to 8.2. Right? And, so, and some of that actually is in about the same field, too. So we have a lot of different interactions within some of the nutrients and uh, within, the, within the soils. And just to understand how that they, they react when you're banding them versus broadcasting them. So pros and cons versus, uh, you know, fall time frame. I have got a lot more flexibility in the fall. Um, not only that, from a custom standpoint, you know, my growers are focused on pretty much one thing, and that's getting harvest done. So that allows for me to come in, get their tillage work, get their fertilizer applied done for them, and they don't have to worry about it. And they really, you know, they really like that. Not only that, I run a dry system, so there is a little longer process to break that dry down and convert into a form that's, that's more usable. Um, but you also, you still have that time crunch. I mean, you're trying to cover a lot of acres in a very short window. We usually get about, usually by the 15th of November, for sure you're wrapped up. I always say any day you can run in November is, is a lucky day. Spring pros and cons. I don't push for a lot of springtime, but since I started doing more spring with a knife and deeping bander a little bit, banding a little bit more, I have started to put a little bit more nitrogen down. Um, I minimized my nitrogen application when I ran my double, my double coulter system, mainly because you could physically see the pellets still up on top. And I, I didn't like that. I was really concerned about like I said, stand issues and emergence issues and, and burn and stuff like that. So we do ban a little bit of nitrogen. I keep my rates pretty low, mainly for a, a salt standpoint also. Usually we're putting down P and K and sulfur and zinc. We might be putting down majority of their fertilizer program except for their nitrogen in the spring. So some of these loads get a little on the hotted side. So I try to trim that to maybe 50 pounds, maybe 75 max. And then if it's wet, you saw the acres in spring of 17, we went from 1500 to 700. We had a really challenging spring this year. And when you'd get a little window to dry out some, guys were going, right? They weren't wanting to wait. Well, that little window was my window to try to get strip tilling done too. So I don't overly promote spring strip till, mainly because we need to get stuff planted in a timely manner and, and they don't really want to wait. And I really don't like somebody out there planting the same day or even the day after I strip. I usually like to see a rain come in, settle it out a little bit, and it plants a whole lot better. So those are some of the spring, uh, pros and cons. This one wasn't a failure. RTK, like I said, I had RTK when I started. It was a no-brainer, but I run a 12-row machine on 30-inch spacing, and those are all the planter setups that I strip till for. And let me tell you what, that's a challenge trying to strip till for a 24-row twin row in of itself just trying to keep those twin rows on a 12 inch wide band. The first guy talked about him making an eight inch wide strip. Well, the first thing that I learned in a fast hurry is to have success with strip till in the custom world, you make your strips wider so those gauge wheels absolutely run on that strip. So RTK is a no brainer for me, but I would say out of the acres that I do in the fall, I'll say 4,500 acres, I bet still probably 1,200 of those have no guidance system on their planner. But we learned one thing after the spring of 14 was that if you have markers, lead them folded up at all times. Do not run your markers, whatever you do, if you don't have a guidance system. You will be substantially better off because your mindset is to follow that mark 
not necessarily watch where your planner's running on those strips. And so that was one thing that we learned in a really quick hurry. And since then, we've adapted to it and, and uh, it works just fine. You're just not as consistently on the strip. The active implement guidance, I never really thought too much about that because we're pretty, we're pretty flat where I'm at until I went to Nebraska. Um, spring of spring of 16. So depending upon how much slope and rolling hills and, and what your terrain is like, active implement guidance might be something worth considering. This guy runs a 24-row planter, plants on strip till, somehow got shifted four inches to the right. As you could tell, we're two leaves behind. That was 30 bushel. Now luckily, he didn't make a lot of continual passes after this after he learned that he wasn't in the center of the strip. But right there just goes to show the value of being right in the center of the strip. And I know there's been some studies done. They've looked at one inch, two inch, four inches off. And of course that number continually increases as you get further away. But I mean, I, I cannot promote enough being in the center of the strip when you're planning on that. If you're not going to, then don't strip till. So this was the same grower. This is actually a different field, but I talk about concept and mindsets. This grower had been conventional till, this is a very wide strip. This is about 12 inches wide, very heavy gumbo soils. For anybody that knows CEC, this is probably like a 32, 33 CEC, very heavy gumbo. V5 corn, I was in this field the week before and it was beautiful. I came back this week and it was falling over like crazy and I, I couldn't figure it out right off the bat. I pulled in, I thought it's soybean stubble. I can't believe we'd have cutworm that bad. And then of course I got my shovel out and I started digging and he did a horrendous job planning. His sidewalls were like concrete. He smeared them. As you can tell, we have no root structure whatsoever. So we seeded about 35,000. Most parts in this field, what had fallen over compared to what hadn't, we had a final stand of about 20,000, merely from one mistake in the planter. He got in there a day too quick and he ran, ran way too much down pressure. So I'm in a little difference. I back off on down pressure, uh, especially I know the no-till guys, they have to run higher down pressure, but I'm trimming down pressure all the time. I'm promoting putting bags on actually to take some pressure off on strip till. You have a very, if you do it right, you have a very nice, finely tilled soil in the springtime. You don't need excessive down pressure, in my opinion. And I understand the theory behind why some people do it, but if you make enough wide enough strip and you keep those gauge wheels on that tilled strip, you're going to want to back off down pressure or you'll have this. So we've learned through some definitely mis some big mistakes on, on how to set up planters. I spend so much more time, that's another reason I don't promote strip till necessarily on, on my side in the spring is because I spend a lot of time writing in planters with my consulting customers, making sure we're doing it right. Especially if they're new to strip till within the last few years. Well, thank you, Joey, for sharing your tips and strategies for some early lessons you've learned in your strip till journey. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest Strip-Till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com and for our free Strip Till Strategies daily email. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip Till Farmer Facebook page. 
And I'd like to once again invite you to join us at the 5th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference, July 26th and 27th in Iowa City, Iowa. The 2018 event will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions on topics and trends specific to strip till. Look for continued speaker announcements and conference updates at striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on July 6th for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series, Part 2 of 10 Lessons for Developing a Successful Strip-Till System. For Joey Hansen, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.